Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns to tell you about Organifi Green Superfood Powder. This is a great tasting green powder. It's amazing, but true. Mix it in water and it's delicious. So you'll use it every single day to get a nice dose of greens, especially if you're traveling, especially if you're trying to go keto and you're not eating that many carbs. This is a great way to ensure that you get all the nutritious benefits in a variety of fruits and vegetables. Mix it in your smoothie. I mix it with my ketone supplement. So even when I'm not eating, I get my greens every single day. Why don't you try some? Go over to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, and enter the code PRIMAL at checkout, and you will get 15% off your first order. Enjoy! Brad Kearns, Primal Endurance Podcast. Welcome to more, 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 more Q&A. Let's do it. So I hope you've taken a look at the website which just recently launched, primalendurance.fit. That is our community building efforts. Got everything there. Uh, of course, links to the podcast. We also have a blog that's going to have some regularly published content, wonderful things, especially lots of excerpts from the Primal Endurance book. And of course, the launch of the Mastery Course, which has been such an exciting process to uh, compile from the start. As soon as the book was uh, published, I set about with the ambition to bring the book to life with uh, all kinds of video instruction on every single topic that's covered in every chapter in the book, nice little bite-sized instructional videos, as well as travel the globe, or at least uh, North America, seeking out the leading experts, many of them who were centerpieces of the book, the stories were told in the book, but also getting them on camera to talk about their athletic uh, realm and their uh, achievements. I talked to a lot of world-class athletes and also experts in other fields that contribute to this comprehensive approach to endurance training so that it can uh, promote your health, uh, delay the aging process rather than compromise your health and accelerate the aging process. So check that out at primalendurance.fit. Please leave us some feedback. Of course, the course can always be refined and updated, and I'm planning on getting more experts and more videos up there. But we have a great start with really the most comprehensive online multimedia course on endurance training ever developed by far with hours and hours of priceless video commentary from the world's leading experts all brought together in one place, as well as me uh, over and over. You get sick of my face, but I try to change outfits and keep it fresh, change locations, um, talking about every aspect uh, that's covered in the book. So if you're too busy to read or you learn better visually or you want to complement your reading with all the visual instruction, this is a great journey. It'll get you totally focused on doing the best you can with your endurance goals and preserving your health at the same time. Uh, see what you think. Email info at primalendurance.fit. Uh, we'd love to have feedback on the course for the earlier students. And also send any question you want uh, designed for answering on the podcast, hopefully of general interest to um, the broader population. That's your cue to perhaps not talk about your toothache or um, the particulars of what your doctor said about your knee. Um, uh, probably probably best uh 
addressed elsewhere besides a podcast for thousands of listeners. But the ones that made the cut, that uh, put in some very thoughtful, provocative commentary, and this stuff has really helped us analyze um, what the the reader, listener, viewer needs, some of the areas, uh, shortcomings in the message that needed to be refined and updated and restructured so that they would be embraced and not so frequently confused. So it's been really helpful to uh, engage with real-life people going for it, sh- pursuing those goals, and sharing their experiences and asking thoughtful questions. The first one is about um, fat consumption and the gallbladder. 44-year-old male had his gallbladder removed 20 years ago. So I feel great. I have fantastic energy endurance weight loss. Primal endurance is really working. Should I make any changes around fat intake uh, looking toward long-term effects? Um, this person's going at like a 10% carb, 75 grams a day or low, uh, 0.85 per pound of lean body weight and protein. So that's right around or a little above the uh, recommendations that we're putting out in keto reset diet and elsewhere. So that's pretty solid. And then uh, a high percentage of calories from fat. So obviously, if you're talking in the medical context, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not a physician. um, But you feel fantastic. You have great energy, endurance, and weight loss. Um, I'm going to say that your diet is working for you. There's a lot of talk about um, having the removal of gallbladder compromise your ability to uh, digest fat. You may hear that from the physician that took the thing out, and you may hear a lot of that content uh, in mainstream circles, but there's also a lot of counter content from people in the primal paleo and keto movement who have had gallbladder surgery and feel just fine and process the predominant amount of calories as fat. Uh, Rob Wolf is one of them, and I've heard him talk about that on his podcast. So go check out Rob, and maybe even if you can do a search, maybe he'll talk about uh, that issue directly on his blog or on his podcast. But unless I'm uh, spacing, um, he has had uh, his gallbladder removed, and of course he's one of the uh, you know the, the founding fathers of the primal paleo movement. The second question. I understand maximum aerobic function and how to do math testing, um, but what is the best number to look for um, for predicting my race results? Um, we know that mafetones, I'm still reading the question, uh, or paraphrasing anyway, um, mafetones come out with recent research uh, that says that your goal marathon pace is around 15 seconds per mile faster than the results from your maximum aerobic function test. Um, and the, the questioner asks... Is this the first mile of your math test, an average of all the miles, or the slowest mile, or something else? So this is a great question, because when you're talking about math tests, I usually use the flippant example of saying, hey, go to a running track and run eight laps, right? Because you're just getting a repeated course every single time. If you're a cyclist, you do another sport, um, you find the same exact course to do every single time. So you have that as a fixed Uh, performance element. Of course, you have the heart rate as a fixed performance element. So you're doing eight laps, in my case, at 130 heartbeats. So that's my math test every single time. Now, what kind of test do you choose? Um, I've recommended 15 minutes in the books and on the podcast just as a nice general um, uh, time duration to make it an actual endurance effort and take away from some of those uh, testing errors that might happen if you're doing a three-minute test or a five-minute test or an eight-minute test. You know, get out there and get into your true, authentic uh, aerobic pace and see what that is. So 15-minute minimum, 
when I was a triathlete and I was uh, training at a high level and performing in two-hour events, I did a five-mile math test. So that's 20 laps around the track. I'm way too bored to do that now. I don't care enough <laughs> about it. But when I was really deep into it, I was doing a really authentic math test that had uh, lasting me for uh, half an hour at my very best performance, five, five miles at six minutes per mile. Um, so again, 15 minutes minimum, probably no need to ever go more than 20 minutes for a math test. Even if you're an endurance athlete, you're going to find that you settle into that pace. And the answer to the question is, this is going to be your average pace per mile. So if you're going for a 26.2 mile marathon, I would say it probably makes sense to do a three mile math test as a minimum because you're such an extreme endurance performer. Um, And then the average of those three miles. So if you do three miles and it's 24 minutes, you're an eight minute per mile math person. That means you can aspire to a marathon, a marathon finishing time averaging seven minutes and 45 seconds per mile. That said, we got to remember, we're not robots here. So when we're trying to plug in a predicted race pace, and there's so much commentary on the internet, and I see articles all the time trying to get a mathematical application or a precise scientific application to these peak performance goals. And what happens is you get into the race mode, there's weather conditions that change, there's terrain that changes that we forget to factor in, as stupid as it may sound. Um, going up hills, you're going to run slower than going down hills. So like in the LA Marathon on the old course, the first six or seven miles were gradually, steadily uphill up Sunset Boulevard. You're so excited and the crowd screaming, and you don't really notice that you've been running uphill for six miles. You're caught up in the buzz and the energy of the race and um, you're going probably far too fast than uh, you might otherwise want to because you're going to pay the price at mile 20 for running uphill at the same speed that you run on the flats, okay? So you've got to adjust to the race circumstances. You've got to throw pace per mile out the window, perhaps better to govern your effort by heart rate, especially in things like the uh, Ironman. The triathletes were all known for strapping up their heart rate monitor for the 112-mile bike ride on the lava fields. And on those uh, particular years where the weather was really hot or really windy, um, it's all going to be represented in heart rate. So your miles per hour on the bike or your desired finishing time of five hours or six hours or whatever, all that stuff is completely irrelevant when it comes to the competitive setting. The other thing I'm going to say about the competitive setting, even though I didn't get a question on this, this is good stuff, especially if you're a real racer. Um, there, Bradley's going to give you permission right now to exceed your predicted uh, heart rate parameter or your pace per mile parameter if it warrants it for a competitive advantage. So if you're running along in the pack and you're running your marathon or you're running your triathlon and it's going a little bit too fast for you, it's probably a better idea to stay in the pack and keep mentally engaged in the pack and keep the slight advantage with wind resistance even running. You still get a 3% advantage over breaking the wind yourself. So whatever it takes to stay in the pack, even if it's slightly or even more than slightly above your anticipated race pace, If dropping off that pack means that you're running solo for the next 14 miles, I guarantee you it's going to be a better deal to stay engaged and you're going to get a better finishing time even if you're uh, stepping past your boundaries. Now, if there's another pack that's running just right, right behind you, you may very well join the proper pack and catch up to a lot of those guys that were running too fast. But these are snap decisions that you need to make on the race course and so you need to factor all these things in. 
but especially being left stranded alone in the name of preserving your pace, it's a much better idea to uh, work a little bit harder in terms of speed, but have it be mentally easier and also aerodynamically easier. Um, Here's the next question. I've lost 90 pounds. In an effort to preserve my legs to some extent, I plan to use an elliptical for many of the runs during the week. Is this acceptable? I plan to use a range of between 123 to 133 beats per minute to give a nice buffer for my maximum aerobic. Does this sound appropriate to you? Well, um, I'm going to answer the question, but of course it doesn't matter what it sounds to me. It's making that calculation um, that's uh, an aerobic, uh, aerobic function number, and of course it sounds appropriate. That's what we recommend, and... Um, even if you're relatively new to the lifestyle, that's the whole point, is that especially on the beginner side, you want to you want to err, if anything, err on the conservative side the, so that you're not pushing yourself too hard and exhausting yourself. So if your maximum aerobic heart rate is 133 and you're exercising at 123, that's a fantastic idea. I've said this over and over that when I was a, a elite professional, I would often perform workouts that were 20, 30, 40, or 50 beats below my maximum aerobic heart rate. My max back then was 155. That was my maximum aerobic number. And I would do uh, casual bike rides, pedaling on flat ground, just uh, you know, getting the blood flowing in my legs, getting the nervous system moving and building that aerobic base and burning fat and teaching my body to, be, to perform at a comfortable pace. I'd do bike rides at 105, 110, 115 heartbeats per minute. So keep that in perspective, keep that in your head when you're itching to extend five beats higher than your maximum aerobic heart rate because you're so bored and frustrated and you think that going a little faster will get you in a little better shape. The maximum aerobic heart rate is where the maximum fat oxidation per minute occurs. The maximum aerobic benefits occur with a minimal amount of anaerobic stimulation. Going farther than that, going faster than that is uh, a big no-no because then you start changing the metabolic effect of the workout. But going slower than that is absolutely allowed and an excellent idea to guard against the chronic patterns, the overtraining, the sugar cravings, and the setbacks that occur when you're training a little bit, even a little bit too hard. Next, Matt asks, what kind of primal lifting exercises do you recommend? How many sets and reps? How many times a week should I be doing these? Also, when should I switch up my routine? Um, So those are nice, good general questions to just put in a little plug for primal blueprint fitness principles as outlined in the book, Primal Endurance. So sometimes when I get um, a, a little bit spicy mood, I will answer some of these questions like, Uh, read the book because we go into extensive detail in the book. So uh, I'd also prefer to have these questions come at us uh, after having read the book because we tried so hard to address these recommendations in the book. But of course, we're going to have nuances and uh, interpretations that need to be expressed further. Um, But in terms of just a general answer, uh, the primal essential movements is such a simple way to, to start out and get into the strength training scene and integrate it into your training pattern. So this is push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks. And if you do even uh, a workout as simple as one set of maximum reps in each exercise, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks, that is a nice foundation. You can do that a couple times a week, no problem. Um, If you're a really serious endurance athlete and you're trying to build that aerobic base, 
it's okay to kind of back off on those during that base building period for that eight weeks where you're really into aerobic. But of course, one set of maximum effort push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks is not even going to interfere with your aerobic conditioning. So there's no reason not to recommend that uh, pretty much year-round, subject to those rest periods or times where you just want to kind of cease your uh, devoted exercises and your uh, structured workouts. Um, But Another good question comes in, since I teased you a little bit at the outset, Matt, and said, read the book. He says, when should I switch up my routine? Um, I like that because it, it, gets, it gets a little confusing. There's counter opinions on this. You've heard these terms bantered about by popular fitness programs like muscle, muscle confusion is so important. You can't do the same workout every week. How are you going to expect to improve? Your body will adapt. If you do 20 push-ups every single day, your body will adapt and it will no longer deliver a fitness benefit. And I think this is um, total bullshit myself. And so if you do zero push-ups a day and you start doing 20 every single day for the rest of your life, um, that's going to be a win-win positive benefit. And I don't care if you become really highly adapted to them and you have no desire, inspiration, or can't be bothered to do more or to throw on a weighted vest or make them harder or put your feet up on an incline position so you're doing decline push-ups. All those things are great because as you progress, it's nice to increase the stimulation and deliver a fitness benefit and make it harder and harder. But at a certain point, you have diminishing returns and you have time concerns. So there's nothing wrong with doing the exact same workout every single day. I'm so high on this. You can feel the um, the enthusiasm in my voice because I realized that um, in my training patterns where I was doing lots of jogging, everyday movement, low-intensity aerobic, and then uh, once in a while doing the explosive high-performing sprint and high-jump workouts, I realized that there was really, I was missing sort of this in-between uh, type of fitness uh, stimulation where I wasn't just going from jogging to going crazy sprinting every seven to 10 days. So I developed this customized morning routine. I put it on YouTube, Brad Kern's morning routine, you can search for, and I'm really high on it. I think it's been a wonderful uh, introduction and inclusion in my daily overall movement, fitness, mobility, injury prevention program. So what I do is every single morning, I do something that's pretty significant. It's nothing to sneeze at, um, but it's not hard. It's not part of a official workout structure where I'm needing to recover from it the next day. I do it every single day. Half of it's in bed before I even get out of bed. And this sort of makes me uh, certain to adhere to this commitment of doing it every single day without fail. Even if I'm tired, even if I'm sore, I can still get in that daily morning routine. And as you watch on YouTube, This is custom designed for me and my concerns about uh, being flexible and mobile for jumping and sprinting and injury prevention from some of the complaints I have, whether it's tight calves or a glute hamstring problem that's been bothering me uh, for a while and and high jumping puts a lot of stress on it. So you can do whatever type of exercises uh, you feel are important to you that you like. Maybe you've got some suggestions from a trainer. Maybe you love the routine that I present right now because it is pretty well balanced and total body-ish in its design. Um, the basic scissors, as you remember from like Jack LaLanne old time pictures where you lie flat on the ground, arms extended overhead, and then you raise your arms and touch your toes and fold back down into flat and then pinch up to a V, fold back down into flat. That's a great uh, core routine. Also does the hip flexors. And then I finish off with the uh, familiar wheel pose from yoga. Sometimes they call it the bridge. It's the wheel uh, the, to make it extra degree of difficulty where I go up on my hands and my feet and kind of arch myself into 
like you're driving under uh, a tunnel. And that one's a really good flexibility one. Obviously, it's the position of the high jumper. So again, it has special meaning to me. But develop some kind of custom morning routine, even if it's only five minutes, whatever it takes to make sure that you'll do it every single day. And it's just a great part of uh, the overall program where it's, you know, it takes the thought out of it or the planning and the structuring and you just do it and all the other workout stuff is on top of that. So Matt asks, when should I switch up routine? And the answer is, uh, when it comes to your workout patterns, whenever you feel like it, whenever you feel some inspiration to try something else, um, I like watching um, Tim DeFrancesco on Instagram and on YouTube. Uh, TDAthletesEdge.com is his website. And um, he has all kinds of uh, fresh video content where he gives you another workout challenge to do that's really tough and um, will you know stimulate some new muscles. You might be sore from it the next day, but it's all working toward improved mix- flexibility and mobility. So mix things up if you want. And if you don't want to, if you just want to be a creature of habit, get down there and do those push-ups every single day. Uh, my father put me to shame when he was 77 years old and he hauled off 30 push-ups at Thanksgiving. And oh my gosh, I dropped down there and I think I did 29 or 30, but I was sore the next day because I was out of the push-up practice. And I'm like, okay, this is what it's all about, consistency and doing something that at least establishes that baseline fitness level. And then you go planning the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys of your uh, traditional training program. So how's that for a big answer, Matt? Thank you so much for the question. Okay, 41-year-old male, since April 16, been living the primal lifestyle and adhering to primal endurance guidelines uh, to better my enduro mountain bike racing passion. Before I read this book, I had zero base, decent sprinting strength, good technical skill, but would cramp and hit the wall at about two hours like clockwork. Also, since life is busy with family work and other stuff, I mostly had to be doing base training following this ratio of 80% base to 20% mountain biking and skills training. And it showed big time in my race runs comparing my times to the same course uh, from previous years on the local trails. I'm planning to stick with a good amount of base fitness for this season, but need to go fast more often to really improve and use the fitness that I have been building. I would love to hear your thoughts and input. So um, my thoughts and input are this statement, I need to go fast more often to really improve and use the fitness that I have been building um, is a little bit of an objection because you can improve indefinitely uh, by emphasizing base as the vast majority of your training hours and getting faster and faster and faster at your aerobic base. We're talking to endurance athletes here on this channel, so if you hit here by mistake, um, you can switch podcasts now, no hard feelings. But if you're pursuing endurance goals, and endurance is anything up at around 15 minutes or more, so that's pretty much everybody out there. If you're a 5K, uh, 5,000 meter collegiate runner trying to break 14 minutes, um, this is still an extreme endurance event that requires a substantial aerobic base. That's why the even the top runners going at 5,000 meters in the Olympics are training for 100, 120, 140 miles a week per running. They're doing massive amounts of aerobic base training in preparation for even a relatively uh, short duration competitive event. Most uh, casual enthusiasts are competing in, uh, like this example, the mountain bike racing, um, the sprint triathlons, which are going up to an hour, hour and a half, two hours. 
uh, four or five hours for marathon runs or ultra marathon runs or half Ironman or full Ironman distance triathlons. So we're talking about extreme endurance events where the by far the greatest return on investment will be to improve your aerobic conditioning such that you can proceed at an aerobic pace, a very comfortable aerobic pace at a faster and faster speed as you progress over time. So base training equals uh, better fat burning, better fat burning capacity, better aerobic conditioning, and faster speed in the races when you do speed up. We spend a lot of time in the book talking about why going slow helps you go faster. Spend a lot of time in the videos. You can watch the Primal Endurance uh, Mastery Course trailer, the one and a half minute exciting video. Check it out because it'll show you what the course is all about. And you get that great quote from Andrew McNaughton uh, during the trailer where he says, uh, it's the most fun to go fast. How do you go faster? You rest more. <laughs> you slow down to your aerobic heart rate so that you can become strong and powerful and access that tremendous reserve of aerobic capacity when it is time to speed up. So there's no reason to think that your ratio hasn't worked. You're reporting great success since April of 16 when you started focusing on building a base, going slower instead of just going like crazy and then hitting the wall at two hours and cramping up. So we want to see improvement. We want to see constant improvement in your aerobic function as evidenced by improvement in your maximum aerobic function tests. And of course, there's a time to introduce high-intensity training, uh, especially the brief explosive sprint training that so many athletes in the endurance scene neglect. Those workouts will have a tremendous uh, benefit to your even into your endurance performance and your overall fitness capacity, but you only do them in the presence of a strong aerobic base. And if you read the chapter on sprinting in Primal Endurance, uh, you'll see one of the great and main benefits of sprinting is that it lowers perceived exertion at all other intensity levels. And this is where we're getting into uh, the influence of the mind, the central governor theory. Um, the literal truth that if a workout or a certain designated pace seems easier because you've been sprinting and doing high-intensity training, if it seems easier to slow down to your usual training pace of running eight minutes per mile or whatever it is, um, if it seems easier, it literally is easier because the neurons are firing better because they have been challenged to their maximum capacity with sprinting. So sprinting, very important. Uh, anaerobic uh, type workouts like interval training, time trials, hill repeats, whatever it is that turns you on, these things have a uh, massive benefit in fitness in a very short time. But the problem is most people screw them up so royally because they have a crappy base and they conduct these high-intensity sessions in an ill-advised manner. They do them too frequently, too often. They turn into mediocre sessions that lead to burnout, illness, and injury. So base first, then, of course, you can sprinkle in some high-intensity stuff, and a little goes a long way when you're doing it correctly. Okay, next one. I follow Joe Friel and am somewhat confused. So am I sometimes when I hear the podcasts uh, getting into the uh, intricacies of heart rate zones and things that I feel like are um, of minor importance compared to this big-picture approach of balancing stress and rest and all that. Anyway, um, that's my plug against a high-tech approach to training. Um, but this is a commentary to try to uh, reconcile from uh, something Joe Friel saying, I guess. Joe is championing that older athletes, 50 plus, need to stop the long, slow, low-intensity training and must engage in high-intensity exercise to maintain fitness, muscle density, and overall fitness, and also the need to eat carbs. 
I accept he predominantly states directly after exercise so that they aid recovery, but this seems like a contradiction to your take. My question must still be, what is the best way forward for me as an older athlete who still wants to compete and thus needs to maintain muscle mass and density, but also needs to look toward the future and maintain the health of my heart? What are your views? Okay, so one thing to be careful with is um, him uh, paraphrasing Joe Friel's message, because if I were Joe, I'd want it to come directly uh, from me. Some people are writing questions back to me saying, you said this in the book, and I'm like, not really. However, I've listened to um, some podcasts where um, uh, Joe and others are talking about how there was a feature article, I believe, in Outside Magazine that I took strong exception to, where they were talking about how um, your aerobic benefits are maxed out so easily that really to stimulate any improvement, you got to go faster. And um, I think these statements are ignoring the big elephant in the room, which is the need to recover and balance stress and rest. Because if you just look in a vacuum and think in a vacuum, if you speed up your training pace and put more intensity sessions into your weekly routine, you're going to stimulate a fitness improvement. But the question is, can you handle it? Can you maintain your immune function? Can you maintain your hormonal balance? And uh, the problem is, and we see this so many times in the endurance scene, is that people are falling apart uh, trying to adhere to uh, high-stress training protocols that are dispensed by uh, uh, a lot of the um, communication resources, coaches, experts, magazines, books. Um, So the number one thing is, are you enjoying yourself? Are you recovering from your workouts? Are you in a stressed, balanced state? Or are you in an overly stressful state? And many endurance athletes have to ask themselves this honest question and realize that they're overdoing it as a general rule in their fitness program. First thing, matter of importance, order of triage in the emergency room is to slow the heck down with your aerobic conditioning workouts. Every bit of aerobic conditioning workout does have a fitness benefit. Uh, Dr. Maffetone um, has been touting this for years and years and years, that if you put in that, uh, what do you call it, the junk mileage, the long, slow distance, or the slow pace training, it is going to deliver a fitness benefit at all higher levels of intensity as well. Because even the fast twitch muscle fibers, when you're doing a time trial or something that's you know, considered high intensity, you're still uh, using those oxidative slow twitch fibers to power a percentage of that effort, especially when you're talking about things that are people think they're speed, but they're truly endurance, like an hour time trial on a bicycle or running is a predominantly endurance event. So those jogging and those spinning the bicycle down the bike trail uh, on a flat course with very low heart rate still contribute to your performance. So if the base is strong, then, especially as an older athlete, I'm going to agree and say, yeah, it's easy to lose that explosive performance as you age. Um, It's possibly easier to preserve that aerobic conditioning as you age. And that's why we see guys like Mark Allen at the advanced age of 38, Craig Alexander, advanced age of 38, winning the Hawaii Ironman, beating up on all the young guys because their aerobic conditioning is so strong. But you don't see a lot of sprinters lining up against Usain Bolt at the age of 38. There are some outliers and world-class performers in the maximum strength and explosive sports that are still going strong into their late 30s because they train really well and um, they don't lose that explosive conditioning due to proper uh, training, training patterns. So 
making these generalizations is extremely disturbing to me, saying that you have to junk slow pace stuff and go faster as you get older. That's just absolutely nonsense. And I don't think uh, Joe Friel's message is that simple either. So, Joe, if you're listening, uh, props to you for going in deep. Let's try to take a look at the big picture. And, yeah, we're going to have some disparate point of views here, possibly even as we go in deep. Um, So, you know, there's another recommendation to uh, apply personal experience and intuition to any of these things that people are touting on podcasts, right? So if you can sit here and take a quick quiz, get out a pen and paper if you want. Have you been improving? Have you not been injured? Have you not been sick? Do you feel fantastic and energized at rest and function well and play with your little children and do weekend yard work chores around the house? Do you lead an active lifestyle where you're walking down to the farmer's market and carrying heavy bags back or putting uh, sandbags on your old lady neighbor's driveway when it rains too much? Can you do all that stuff? Or are you a, as Katie Bowman likes to say, a narrowly adapted creature? creature who's good at engorging certain muscle groups and pumping blood to perform a specialized activity like pedaling a bicycle. So if you're good for nothing else than pedaling a bicycle, it might get to what this questioner is saying that you're increasing your cardiovascular disease risk rather than uh, proceeding on a healthy lifestyle path that you might think you're on due to your activities. And high-intensity exercise, great example. A little goes a long way, and too much will absolutely compromise your health. It'll destroy your hormonal and immune function balance, and you'll land in that burnout category that is so familiar to so many people in the endurance scene. Um, Listen to my show with uh, Chris Kelly and Dr. Tommy Wood, both uh, principals at Nourish Balance Thrive and they're doing this comprehensive testing and treatment protocol for endurance athletes especially, but all athletes, all active people, to identify uh, all these functional problems through blood work and stool and urine testing, uh, finding out just how much damage you're doing to your body with your overly stressful lifestyle patterns. So most endurance athletes, rather than wondering if they should up the intensity of their workouts, should probably up the intensity of their sleeping habits and lower the intensity of their life in every way because we're all trying to squeeze in so much stuff and do more and and stay busy and be constantly hyper-connected to uh, technology. And all these things are really running amok to the extent that slowing down is a great idea, not only for improving fitness, but for just balancing your life. Whew, on to the next one. Uh, My question is about expanding this intuitive nature to all training. Is it possible that I could do all my training by feel? For example, maybe I feel really like getting after a CrossFit workout two or three days in a row, and then maybe want to lift something heavy, then take a few days off, then do some aerobic runs, essentially basing all my training on how I feel. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for the uh, interesting comment. I love that. And um, this opens up uh, a bigger dialogue. Uh, One of them is that intuitive training is... Uh, I'm absolutely a huge proponent of that. Of course, you can read in the book just how how much emphasis is placed on this concept. And my goodness, I mean, you could do worse than waking up every day and doing the workout that you feel like doing or not doing the workout that you don't feel like doing. So if you can get to that position of power, I think that's wonderful. And I just want to put in one little caveat here. And that is sometimes we get into these overly stressful lifestyle patterns the overstimulation of the sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system to the extent that piling on more more stress 
just gets us more wired and running on fumes, running on adrenaline, they often call it. So what you're getting is this cocktail of fight or flight type hormones coursing through your bloodstream every single day because you're so jacked up to work out and you're getting into CrossFit gym at 6 a.m. five days a week or something crazy like that and pushing yourself with a high-intensity session and you're enjoying the camaraderie and you're enjoying the buzz that you get from people cheering for you, lifting a higher weight each passing day or each passing week or whatever. And what happens is you get yourself into an overly stressful workout and lifestyle pattern due to the positive stimulation of lifestyle stressors. So in other words, working too hard because you love your job is still a health risk, just like um, doing anything to the extent, to, to to the excess. So even though you love your workouts, you love setting that alarm and getting up and tackling your day with the rising of the sun at 5 a.m., Um, you still have to put in sort of this critical thinking observation that could this be biting off more than I can chew, even though I feel pretty good, I feel fine, I feel great, I feel buzzed. So we have to build in recovery patterns into our busy, hectic, stressful life, more so than ever before in the time of human history, because we have so much stimulation. The stimulation is enjoyable, it engages us, We love to get on social media in the evenings or on our Netflix queue and see all this fun stuff, but we're compromising our sleep in the process while we're having fun and enjoying ourselves. You get my point here? Same with the workouts. Sometimes it's a better intuitive decision to pass on a workout option and sit at home or walk around the block and buy a peach at the corner store and walk home rather than get into that bike pack and mix it up, even though you'll feel great and jacked up and stimulated by the stressful nature of these things that are uh, you're, you're putting forth in your life. So besides that, intuition is great, but also, uh, you know, I like to define intuition as the con- uh, combination of instinct and higher thinking. So you have animal instinct. We sometimes confuse that with intuition. You know, the animal feels like uh, doing this, doing that, and they just act according to instinct. They don't have that higher level reasoning powers where humans do. So your instinct might be to uh, catch that clown that just passed you on the bike trail uh, on an inferior machine and gave you a snarking look. You want to pass him and drop him with your new $8,000 racing bike and show him who's boss. But if you're engaged in a recovery training session that's counter to your desired and stated benefit of the workout, then you have to rein yourself in, rein your competitive instinct in uh, by, because you're operating by intuition rather than just base baseline animal instinct. Get the difference? All right, because that's good. There's another question about intuition. Um, oh, no, sorry. That was the previous. Okay, so here's the next one. I live in the UK, pretty much at sea level, but soon I'll be moving to Colorado, United States of America, and arriving for the winter season. So I'll be living at 10,000 feet before I return to the UK. To continue my aerobic training, are there any adjustments I should make to my max heart rate uh, and or my diet, or should I just accept that my pace will be much slower at my maximum aerobic heart rate given the altitude? Yes. Is there anything I could do differently to make the most of living at high altitude for a few months? First of all, get out there and enjoy the exercise at 10,000 feet in Colorado, man. That's going to be fun. And of course, you can put on snowshoes and get a fantastic workout moving at two miles per hour. That's the great thing about heart rate training and understanding the metabolic effects of uh, aerobic training. 
that you can literally just be walking up a hill uh, and getting the same workout as you are flying around the nice flat trail at sea level uh, around the lake in temperate weather. Same with people down in the, um, the, the southern part of the United States when it gets super hot in the summer. You're reduced to a jog simply due to the thermal stress of exercising in high temperatures, and that's just the way it goes. You have to make, um, make do with what environment you have I don't think it's that great to exercise the body in 100-degree temperatures. It's probably better to do nothing sometimes than go out there and push yourself in the name of um, uh, pursuing fitness. Um, I'm going to be validated by that when you strap on a heart rate monitor and head out the door for your usual 9-minute-per-mile pace that you do under normal temperature circumstances. But if you're at 10,000 feet above sea level or you're in 93-degree humidity when you're on vacation in Mexico, you're pretty much reduced to a walk to get the same workout that you normally do. And that's what it's all about. So those are the adjustments that you make. You accept going much, much slower, and you enjoy nature and the mountains and uh, still get a great aerobic training session. Here's another one. Big problem. I've never cramped before in my life, 25 plus years of running. I've only bonked once due to no water available at the race. Now I've cramped after 270.3, that's a half Ironman triathlon race, um, badly. Again, at the start of the run, I've taken salt, electrolytes, water, nutrition, everything while on the bike. I never got thirsty. I was doing fine. I had two tablespoons of MCT oil in the water. I took essential amino acids. I think I planned pretty well. It's not my first rodeo. I also tried hot shot. I guess that's a product or something to stop the cramping. Uh, and 15 minutes later, the cramps went away. But I also stretched, pounded my cramping muscles, ate some banana, took some Gatorade. I was really desperate. I'm looking for reasons why this is happening. I'm over maximum aerobic heart rate in a race by 15 beats, but it's not that much faster. Is it that I'm not training at speed enough? Question mark. Okay, so what about cramping? Oh, mercy. A lot of times we blame um, nutritional things, uh, lack of potassium, uh, things of that nature. It turns out from a lot of expert opinion that it's pretty darn hard to get yourself into a depleted electrolyte state to produce a cramp. It just isn't that easy to do. If you're eating a nutritious diet, if you're adhering to the basic general guidelines of hydration, such as adding a bit of salt to your big uh, voluminous, intake of, um, voluminous intake of water if you're training hard or it's hot weather out there. So um, let's put the, um, the nutritional electrolyte concerns aside for a moment and leave those to the experts, especially one-on-one -on -one experts when it's talking about your own personal cramping things. But I'm going to make the general statement that uh, I'm going to blame a lot of cramping episodes, because I get this from so many athletes, just this inexplicable cramping when it's time to perform in the most important races. And I'm going to put a lot of these into the category of just doing something that is over your head that you haven't prepared uh, perfectly for. So you're challenging your body to the maximum. Stuff happens out there on the race course, man. It's a tough sport. It really is. This endurance stuff is really putting your body under challenge. So uh, I would ambition to approximate the challenge that you face in training, excuse me, that you face on the race course in training. So I talk to a lot of triathletes who cramp up on the bike and they report that they never once in training have done a sustained swim of the distance of the race, like a, a mile point two swim in the case of the 70.3 uh, 
that the writer's talking about and then jumped immediately on the bike, dripping wet, and started pedaling for three or four or five hours consecutively. Um, it helps to do a lot of swimming and training, but most of the time we're swimming, we're getting out, we're showering, we're drying off, we're getting a bite to eat, um, we're getting dressed casually, then getting out there and riding our bikes or waiting four hours and doing it later in the day. So when you approximate the challenge of the race course in training, you have a better chance of avoiding these surprise incidents like cramping. Um, so if anything about the race is a surprise uh, or different than your training, um, that's going to be a good red flag for increasing the risk of uh, muscle tightness, uh, weird things happening, cramping, things like that. I hope that advice is um, enlightening. I know it's not as uh, nice as saying, well, take three of these uh, special electrolyte pills and it'll never happen again. But that's just the reality that sometimes cramping occurs and it's hard to, um, it's hard to attribute the source. Okay, we'll get to some more questions at the next show, but I think that was a nice mix. Thank you so much for listening to the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Don't forget to go over to primalendurance.fit. You can check out this wonderful new Primal Endurance Mastery course and also sign up for the uh, nine free videos that tell you what the course is all about, kind of a summary of everything that you're going to learn to see if it's something that'll work for you. All you got to do is go and uh, fill out that form and check out everything uh, we put on video for you to give you a nice taste. Talk to you next time. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.